Welcome to Teacher Talks. After having such great conversations with innovators and thought leaders in the field of education, we looked around our community for practitioners in the field who joined us to discuss what these themes could look like in actual everyday classrooms, pre-K through 12th grade. Real talk with real teachers. Let's get into it. I am so lucky to be joined once again by the creme de la creme of St. Andrew's Episcopal School. Uh, across from me, I have the wonderful Anna Frame, and joining me virtually, I have Dr. Matt Luter, uh, both of whom will introduce themselves anon. I, am course, I, of course, am Toby Lowe, your sometimes host of the teacher edition of the Inspire and Innovate podcast. And uh, Anna, how about you take it away? Thanks, Toby. I thought creme de la creme was you, and then it was me, too, which <laughs> felt good. So I'm Anna Frame, and I currently teach fourth grade social studies, and gosh, seven years of that, I think, and then I taught third grade for three more years. For So this is my 10th year at St. Andrews as a teacher. I was a student there for 14 years, and um in between being a student and all that stuff, I taught in JPS for a few years before St. Andrews, and I'm also a mom to two St. Andrews kiddos. Wonderful. Uh, both of whom rule. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Matt, tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, I am Matt Luter, and I teach English in the upper school. Uh, this is my fifth year at St. Andrews, um, I guess eight years uh, total in K-12, um, 11 years total full-time in, in teaching altogether. Yeah, and, and Matt also um, is a man of scholarly pursuits too. So in addition to teaching, he also does a lot of uh, David Foster Wallace scholarship. So I, I didn't want to leave that out because I think it informs a lot of what you do. But uh, Again, just a quick thing about me. I teach fifth grade math. Currently, I've taught fourth grade on the same team. Woo! Yeah, big ups. So to, fun. That was a lot of fun back in the day. And uh, I've taught first grade as well. So I've been all around the joint at St. Andrews. They finally found a place uh, they liked me, I think. So I'm glad to have been there. Uh, so we all got to listen to John Spencer's episode. I got the pleasure of actually got speaking with him, and he was a lot of fun to talk to. He's a really energetic guy and has a lot of great ideas and has just, you know, I, I love it because he does a lot of stuff, and there's stuff that you can walk away with. I have to say, a mea culpa, I said, I'm going to start doing the uh, fail of the week, and I guess my own personal fail of the week is that I haven't done that yet. So I need to remember to bring that into my classroom. <laughs> but I'm going to reincorporate the fails of the week by saying, I forgot to do it, and I'm going to give myself a message to do it. But I figure maybe a fun way to start, because he's all about this kind of intentional risk-taking, or at least not being risk-averse. And I'm just thinking, actually, Anna, you had to take a pretty big risk a couple years ago, because they kind of changed how you're going to be teaching stuff, right? Did yes. They, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Wait. Tell me more. But didn't you go from only doing history to history and lit? Yes. So I've been... Things change. They, it seems like every year lately. But I was teaching just social studies for a good chunk. And then last year we moved to 
semi-departmentalized. So I was teaching kind of all language arts and social studies. And then my co-teacher taught math science. And then this year we're back to I'm teaching social studies and grammar all in my block of time. So it's been kind of a a lot of flux lately. And I'm hoping that that what I'm doing this year will continue next year because it helps to have a little consistency sometimes. We'll see. That's the plan, I think. There we go. It's always good to have sort of a plan going ahead. So I guess I'm just hoping, can you pull back, can you remember any, I know it's impossible to remember things before COVID happened, but what were some struggles you remember having just being told, oh, by the way, now, please teach literature? Oh my gosh. We, um, we really wanted to do Lucy Calkins reading and writers workshops, and I just feel like totally blew it. I don't know. It was... Um, that was a lot. It I liked it because it felt like it was going to be this pretty package. And then when you got down into it, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so much to try and do in this half of the day. And it just quickly became very overwhelming. And so we kind of pulled back from that a little bit and, and still incorporated parts of it. But we had to kind of hit pause there. And, and rethink what we were doing and what we were capable of doing. And I think we just kind of, it looked good. And then, you know, we, we bit off a little bit more than we, than we were prepared for in that first year of that teaching model. I think that speaks to your experience as a teacher uh, and just the confidence you have to have to be like, I, I need to know when I don't have to kill myself to yeah. uh, put together a package. So I'm glad that y'all were able to do that. Um, I am pretty quick to say I'm not doing a great job with this I'm okay with saying that about a lot of things and call for help so I guess you could say that's a strength it absolutely is and I know John Spencer would say that's a strength and and that you're modeling it for your students like knowing how to ask for help I remember not wanting to ask for help all the time in elementary school I don't know if you were the same way or not but you know if I don't know it I'm gonna shut up about it and uh and I've been that way as a teacher too, actually. I, re- I remember um, I, was, I had an ELD student and did not ask for the resources I needed and then ended up, you mm. know, just feeling like a complete failure because this poor little student still had trouble <laughs> reading in, in her new language. And I was like, what am I going to do next time? And, yeah. and Tim Alford said, well, you should probably ask for help. <laughs> That's a good first step. It is. It is. Um, you know, if, I I feel okay asking for help. I think sometimes I'm not confident in myself enough, too. Like, sometimes I kind of think, I forget. I've been doing this a long time. I can can handle a little reading instruction, even though it's been a few years since I've, I've taught it, so... It was a good it was a good plunge. I was happy this year to kind of scale back and get back into just social studies and grammar because I do feel like as a teacher I um, do a better I, I do a I like being able to hone in on kind of one or two things and really do those things well. Whereas other teachers really flourish when they're in a self-contained classroom and are kind of hitting a little bit of everything. So it's it's been um, good to be back to this schedule this year, awesome. for sure. And one more question for you before we move to Matt: Are you still doing those awesome debates? 
Oh, Toby. Okay, yes, and then and then COVID. Uh, um, so we can blame COVID for that. There we and go. And then this year, I've been piloting some different stuff for Shay, just some kind of trying out some different curriculums. And so that is not going to happen again this year, but it doesn't mean it will never happen again because there are some students on the debate team now that we debated with in fourth grade and I feel like maybe I had a tiny little piece of that oh for certain and Darren Darren for sure (laughs) helping us out we'll give them a little bit of credit yeah yeah and a frame fourth grade that's what they're going to say when they're holding the big debate award that's right that's right uh Matt I'm curious because we um Full disclosure, Dr. Luder and I are friends outside of the podcast. <laughs> not that Anna and I are not, but um, Matt and I talk a lot because I, I'm, I'm secretly a frustrated not English teacher. Like, that's what I originally wanted to try to be. And um, and we talk a lot about just curriculum and, and what do you choose to teach when you have the breadth of, you know, literature so i'm curious what are some risks you feel like you've taken just in even choosing what you're going to do sure um there's gosh i think one word that comes immediately to mind as a um as an answer there would be balance and this is something that like only comes through sort of trial and error, right? Of, of sometimes teaching the same class over multiple years, or since everything I'm teaching right now is a semester course, teaching it, you know, having being able to do some quick revisions in the spring of the way I was teaching something in the fall. But um, you know, uh, I have had the experience of feeling like a text did not go well in a class and then almost immediately thinking, okay, that one had to do with the way that I presented it or introduced it or the way I sequenced it in the Mm -hmm. course. I've occasionally had come to the conclusion of, ooh, that might be a text that worked well with college age students that maybe just isn't gonna fly with high school juniors or seniors. I've had one or two examples of those. But for instance, You know, I'm teaching right now an African-American lit course. I'm teaching right now a Southern lit course. These are two classes that can approach some kind of uh, sensitive material at times. And I've, I've realized after doing those a couple of times that just the sequence of material matters that like, yes, there's going to be some, some weighty texts in both of those classes. And, um, you can wear out a group of students <laughs> with 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 weighty material for a few weeks. Uh, and so, you know, just sequencing, for one thing, uh, things that maybe are um, weightier with stuff that is maybe a little bit of a palate cleanser. Um, switching between genres helps there, too. Like, uh, you know, not doing two lengthy novels back to back but instead um, mixing things up with, with poetry, with shorter things as well. Um, th- there's all sorts of factors like that. Um, looking for, I mean, always also thinking about balance in terms of sort of demographics of the writers 
that are, are represented on a syllabus. I'm, I'm always looking to um, try to make sure we have a substantial number of, of writers who are women, substantial number of writers who are African-American or of people of, co of people of color to the best of my ability. I know I'm doing that imperfectly, but I'm, you know, uh, something I'm constantly working on and thinking about. Yeah, I think that's one of those things that, like, you have to realize that's going to be one of my long failures, right? Uh, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, you're doing it. You're doing all the right things. But I, uh, I keep coming back to that word failure. So uh, it kind of defined what we talked about <laughs> the other week. But, yeah, that's awesome. I hadn't even considered that, but just just don't weigh down your kids with a bunch of heavy stuff. What is like an example of a palate cleanser? I'd love to hear what an 11th grade palate cleanser is. <laughs> um, gosh, let's see. Um, things that, uh, I, well, I mean, I started to say just anything that there can be humor in, but that's so subjective, right? <laughs> um, you know, I, uh, well, okay. I'm also doing this, this, um, this sort of drama class right now where we're reading plays you know from the ancient world into the 20th century and um one thing that keeps coming up in that class is how many different playwrights refer to their work as a comedy when it doesn't seem funny at all <laughs> and so uh and so when we got to reading the importance of being earnest and we did and i intentionally put that right before spring break and, you know, I, I was like, I promise this time, this one is a comedy. This one is funny. This one is not a conceptual comedy. It's not a comedy in the classical sense. Like, you're going to laugh out loud. Um, so that, that for sure. Um, and, and yeah, and, and it, and it worked well. It, 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 as a thing to enter spring break with, I think it made a lot of sense. That's just something that's so interesting to me, uh, just not having lived the life of a fourth grade teacher or a, um, you know, an 11th and 12th grade teacher in so long is thinking how real the schedule does affect all of these little choices you have. So I'm just mm -hmm. a big fan of the mastery y'all are both showing. I love it. What are some vague, okay, let's talk about the big one, please. Uh, what are some risks and intentionalities you have to do when you're entering May Day season? Oh... Ah, uh, wow. Yeah, it's always, you know, in the back of your mind when you're planning, you know that you, we're going to have to carve out a little time for this. So I usually kind of end the year with a little more civics, you know, and, and to me, that's kind of a, a good way to end the year. I know um, Susan Pace and Angie Smith in the past have kind of ended the year with poetry and just give ourselves the the wiggle room there because we know we're going to have to give up some of our schedule for that. So uh, this year, it's just fourth graders as of now doing May Day. So we're still we're we're just getting into that right now. Having to um... oh okay. Yeah, I was uh, for those who don't know, uh, St. Andrews has a wonderful tradition. Uh, called May Day, where, uh, and it's the culmination of your time at the lower school, which is, you know, pre-K through fourth. And as a fourth grader, you get to wrap the maypole and the, you do it to the waltz of... Waltz of the flowers. Thank you for yes. saving me. I forgot. So there's beautiful music and almost always there's gorgeous weather and it's just a great time to be 
sad that they're leaving, but happy that they're going to be fifth graders. So, and it does cast um, a rather long shadow over the month of April <laughs> because you're making time in your instruction for May Day practice. And but let's talk about the fact, too, that you can incorporate May Day into the classroom <sighs> because Val Dimney has those kids measuring their sashes, and there's a lot of social-emotional stuff happening. It takes a lot of working together and kind of teamwork and building each other up, so... It's not it's it's not lost time. That's true, means. and yeah, y'all y'all are great about um, hitting those so-called soft skills. Or there's a great social emotional learning curriculum at the South Campus, and and I know too. Speaking of uh, Val, I know she has done some really interesting project-based learning, and I bet ha, have y'all been doing that as well. Is that a big thing in fourth grade? Yes, I love to to attempt a project <laughs> and attempt being the keyword there. Uh, there, I feel like every year I attempt some new thing, you know, going back to when Rebecca Bernhardt was down there and the makerspace that we have in the Discovery Center was this, this new place. You know, we had them do a project about the Natchez Trace and they were making board games and um, using the green screen to film themselves. And um, we quickly realized that there's no sink in the maker space. And we were doing these paper mache projects and dripping like wet flower hands through the brand new Discovery Center. Oh, Lord. So I'm still hoping we can get a, a utility sink in there someday. But, and they'll um, let you back in. <laughs> I know. We haven't been able to go in there this year because of COVID, and I've missed it. I've really missed it. So the projects this year, uh, this year I did a, a, a heavier, um, just a writing project. It wasn't. But I'm really, really hoping next year and looking, piloting for Shade, this program that's really heavy, inquiry-based, and very much kind of, it's got an action sequence at the end, so we'll see. But it, it could be really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, how did you kind of slide into project-based stuff? Because I remember even, we've been talking about it for such a long time that you and I visited a school in New Orleans like to get interested in project-based learning and look at makerspaces. And then I was like a little nervous about trying to do stuff. But like, how did you like, what were some of your baby steps into it? That's right. I forgot about that trip. Um, well, I feel like I just always thought like, oh, let's do a project even before I heard the terminology project-based learning. And then, you know, some colleagues came along. I'm thinking about Brooklyn Carmichael, who mm. was really well-versed in PBL. And, and the more she was talking about it, I was like, well, that's kind of what, what we're doing. But I think really it just stemmed originally from wanting to do some hands-on activities and giving students a way to present their knowledge that was different from just taking a test, but to kind of really show what they had learned in a different avenue and, and perhaps a more creative, hands-on way. Um, and, and then, as it turned out, it was a little project-based learning-ish, but I definitely, in reading the John Spencer book launch, was like, oh, I'm not doing all the things by any means. So there's, there's always room for growth there. But you found a really good place to start. That's awesome. Matt, I wanted to ask you, for some reason, it seems like all the fun of learning is extracted by the time kids get to high school. Like, we don't 
Like it just feels like literature class can be so dry. And I know yours is not, but what are some of the things you do? I'm thinking specifically in terms of like choices you offer students or especially in your assessment. I remember you told me something that was really interesting uh, that you that you had students do instead of just writing, you know, an expository essay. Sure. Um, excuse me. Um, I am someone who is getting my feet wet, so to speak, with with project based learning. So I would not present myself as, as you know, uh, a, a super, super experienced authority on it. But um, for one thing, building building a lot of choice into it for one thing. Um, and I've I've talked, I've talked with you, I've talked with Julie a little bit about um, sort of just assignments that kind of uh, throw a little bit of a wrench into the perceived dichotomy between creative writing and critical writing. Yeah. Right. Um, there's all pretty frequently I will hear a student express like, oh, I, I love creative writing. But this this analytical thing, I just I just don't know about. So, um, for instance, when I have taught eleventh grade here, um, the occasional assignment asking students to write in the voice of a character, uh, where where sometimes the feedback that I might give them is, "Whoa, you're saying something here that actually seems really out of character for this." this voice or seems in a couple of cases maybe actually contradicted by what the text says so you're still having to sort of demonstrate good strong understanding of the text you're responding to but um at the same time uh approach it in a way that is not just um you know a five paragraph essay something of that sort um and it also sort of requires questioning some kind of received orthodoxies they have heard about what kind of writing happens in a classroom hmm. you know when i when i get the question how many paragraphs is this and i respond well i don't know that's <laughs> up to you like that's i know for some students that is a frustrating response but um but it's also uh and this this was some stuff that you know uh I know John Spencer was talking about, about sort of giving students permission to fail kind of requires also giving them permission to make a lot of the decisions about how they are going to approach a task, right? Um, Toby, you were talking about uh, not, about, about sometimes students asking if their answer to a math problem was correct and you responding, I don't know, do you think it is? <laughs> like. I, I feel like I do a lot of the writing teacher's equivalent of that, which is, well, you could do it that way. And 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 I know for some students that's a bit of a, a of a frustrating response, but it's also a way of I, I hope like translating a lot of the responsibility for their own writing back to them while still saying I'm sort of on the side supporting and responding. You asked about literature and I wound up talking way more about writing. And I guess that's because I, I just, I, I, I find the two so hard to separate from each other. Yeah, absolutely. No. Yeah. And yeah, I just, I still remember it was like a year ago you told me, oh, well, one of the assignments I gave was you're a member of the town of Hester Prynne and you're writing her yes. obituary. 
And yeah. that assignment, I just thought like, how, how awesome, how lucky are these students and what an interesting way to get at their knowledge. And it was a way of talking about, uh, about rhetorical situation also. I, I told them, for instance, um, you can't use 21st century slang in this, in this assignment. That is not because 21st century slang is bad. It's because it does not fit the rhetorical situation of this assignment in which you are in 17th century Massachusetts. And so um, I think that kind of thing, you know, using it as an entry point to talk about something that is like a really broadly applicable writing idea, thinking about the specific situation you're writing in. Um, and hey, that and so being able to say, hey, look, that applies to this kind of creative task, too. <laughs> awesome. We just have a few minutes left, and I'd like to pose uh, the same question to both of you. So the kind of the idea of this Teacher Companion podcast is for us all to share out cool things we're doing in the hopes that other people are inspired. One of my favorite teachers always said, the best teachers are thieves. So I kind of want to, uh, it's kind of like the steal this book book, right? Um, what's something that you've done that's worked really well that you just encourage anyone else to try out? Um, so take a minute or two to think, but or if something really pops up. I mean, I can go first because um, I stole this idea a long time ago, but it's um, giving homework choice. So the worst thing possible about homework for kids is it seemed to be a dichotomy. They either finished it in 30 seconds or they spent 30 minutes on it. So the idea of letting a kid choose what type of homework they wanted to do really appealed to me. And it's a little bit of extra work every morning, but it's so worth it. That's the number one thing kids leave my class thinking about is I'm really glad we got to choose our own homework. Um, mm. So that's something I think folks could steal. It's not super difficult to slot into your everyday routine. Can Matt go next? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matt, what you got? I mean, the first thing that came to my, my mind was, um, and this is not like a daily practice thing. This is kind of a like conceptual course thing, was trying to, I've had a few classes where I try to build into it a little bit of like questioning what the course is. <laughs> um, which th this kind of meta move, I guess. The African-American lit class, we spend about the first two weeks on this question of like, what is this tradition? What defines it? Why do some people think of it as a separate tradition? Should we think of it as a separate tradition? The Southern lit class I'm doing, I I like, I don't love the anthology that, that I've adopted for it. Um, and in the fall, I actually had, we spent about half a day on the table of contents of it and just said, look at this table of contents. It is divided into the Old South, the Civil War, the Depression, now. <laughs> what is that story? What's getting emphasized? What is missing? And that wound up being a kind of fruitful conversation. I've given this... Um, assignment in American Lit Surveys before that that uh, I know um, Ruth Holmes has also uh, given the last couple of years since she's uh, also been teaching 11 of having students at the end of the course create their own miniature anthology uh, on a topic of their choice, which sort of encourages them to think of like not just um, what uh, 
is an anthology for? What sort of connections across ideas can we include? But then it's also really fun to, I, I require them to include things that we did not talk about in class that they are willing to say kind of belong in the same book. Mm -hmm. And when you have some kids make the case of like, look, I'm putting Kendrick Lamar right next to Richard Wright. Like there's, there are some cool things that happen <laughs> as a result of saying, hey, you bought this book. We're going to use it. It has value. We can also question it. Excellent. Okay, I'm ready. All right, I'm excited. I do a lot of singing and dancing. <gasps> yes. And I have this, I mean, I kind of feel like it's kind of just a horrible song, and I've been doing it for so long. Oh, and my it's God, all please. About, it's called The Tension Dance, and it's all about the tensions that are building as we lead up to the American Revolution between the colonists and Great Britain. And the way that it came to be is that we were reading this chapter and they're doing the study guide and I'm like, gosh, this is a lot for them to remember. It's a lot of like chronological events and you need, they need to know what happened before what and how this event led to this one and impacted this one. And I just put it into a song <laughs> and dance and it has been, I mean, I know for a fact that eighth graders now learned it. And so... <laughs> The one, and I tried to kind of not do it this year. And then I was like, I got to teach them to dance because it's so <laughs> helpful. And so it's this whole long thing that starts with the French and Indian War and ends up with the Intolerable Acts and um, the First Continental Congress. And, you know, it's one of the really cool things is it's got all these motions that go with it. And I'm like, look, y'all don't have to do this. You can sit there. And I'm not going to force you to do it, but I'm going to tell you when you go to do your test, if you're stumped on something and you come up to me, if you do this, I can do a hand motion and you will immediately know what I'm talking about. And if you don't do this, you're not, or, or I say, I have students go in the hall when they're doing the assessment, say, Miss Frame, can I go out in the hall and do the dance? And I say, yes. And so they go do it. And so... I feel like I'm so sick of it by the time we're done with it because they want to do it every day. And we, <laughs> we add to it and I have like these little parts and I can remember the students that like invented the choreography for it oh throughout God. the years. So that is something that uh, has worked and it's really fun. Uh, another cool new thing that's a little probably like higher level thinking is um, – this hexagon map and so it's it's historical concepts so we just did one for the 13 colonies and it has you know um, the Colombian exchange and it has um, disease and and all this stuff and on each of them is each of them on a hexagon and so students connect each hexagon and so you you have to connect one to another but you can connect up to six and then they have to explain how they're connected. And so that was really cool to see, you know, kind of a visual of their thinking and let them see like my map can look very different from this person's map and that's okay as long as I can explain my thinking. And um, so that was something new that I did that I really loved and will definitely use in the future. Those are both really awesome things. Thank you for sharing. I think probably, uh, 
at the next party that happens, we're gonna have to see this dance, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that'll be a that'll be a podcast extra. Well, Matt and Anna, thank you so much for joining us. We are out of time, but I'm just so glad I got to spend this time talking with both of y'all. It's I just love it. So y'all, let's get out there and do some stuff. <laughs> <laughs>